Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features the Labour MP Rosie Duffield. It's a phenomenal chat about her time in politics, how she won the unwinnable seat of Canterbury in 2017, the first ever Labour MP for Canterbury, and then won it again in 2019 with a majority that increased tenfold. Uh, more on that in a second. And um, Don't forget you can come and see me live. Thank you to all of you who've come to see me on tour so far. It's been the most enjoyable tour I've ever done, so thank you so much. Uh, I'm in Maidenhead this Friday at Norden Farm. There's about five tickets left for that. I'm at the London Bloomsbury Theatre on Saturday the 23rd of April. On Sunday the 24th of April, I'm at the Tobacco Factory in Bristol. I think that might have sold out, but check the website for returns. I'm at Leamington on the 28th of April. Uh, I, I, get, I think there's about three tickets left for that. Shrewsbury, the Theatre 7 on the 29th of April. I think there's about three tickets left for that. Nottingham Glee Club on Thursday, the 5th of May. An emotional homecoming. And then Gloucester on the 6th of May. York on the 12th. I think that's sold out. Leeds on the 13th. I think that's sold out. Canterbury on the 15th. Extra on the 22nd. And then a run at the Soho Theatre. And oh, Peterborough on the 13th of July. So uh, go to mattfold.com slash 2022 tour uh, for that, or just, you know, mattfold.com and you'll be able to navigate yourself around a website. I'm sure you're clever. Um, and future guests for the show. My next guest at the political party is Andrew Marr on Monday, the 2nd of May. Oh my God. I mean, where do you even start with Andrew Marr? All his years at the BBC as political editor. I loved his book, My Trade which taught me so much about how journalism works and obviously now leaving the BBC. So I'm, uh, I'm guessing he will be unshackled and candid about his many years there and not just the role of the media and specifically the BBC in holding politicians to account, but the people that he's interviewed over his career. You think of all the world leaders. I mean, I get amazing guests on this show, um, but Andrew Marr really has interviewed everybody. So that will be a phenomenal and very special night with a treasured broadcast journalist. And so that is on Monday, the 2nd of May, the link to that and, to all the shows uh, on my stand-up tour, including my night at the Bloomsbury Theatre on Saturday the 23rd of April. All the links are in the blurb there. Thank you for all your emails about the Jacob Rees-Mogg episode. <laughs> it caused quite a fuss, as you would imagine. Um, and the other part of that Christmas special um, with the phenomenal Rosanna Allen Khan will be the next episode after this. So I've, I've split the Christmas special up to get the Easter special in. Because I've done some topical stand-up at the start of this one, I mean, obviously, at the moment, to topical stand-up takes very quickly. So I was keen to get this out, um, because even now, in the last couple of days, more has happened. Um, but this show, uh, obviously, uh, begins with a bit of stand-up, but the, the main uh, element of the show, of course, is the interview with Rosie Duffield, who was a phenomenal guest and speaks very emotionally and very openly and very honestly about a whole variety of things, her relationship with politics in general, her relationship with her party, and of course, issues of sex and gender and the politics around all of those things and her perspective and where she's coming from. And it's just a, a really immersive, uh, emotional um, interview. Uh, so that is a real uh, treasure. But it begins with some topical stand-up recorded just a few days ago at the Duchess Theatre. Enjoy. Uh, his apology last week, I don't know if you saw the video, sort of non-apology apology that he put out where he's there holding on to his script for dear life, um, talking utter shit about what got on. Some of the stuff he'd come out with very early on, he said on, on the Dean question, which uh, happened to be my birthday. No, don't bring that into it, mate. You're the Prime Minister, you're not a fucking five-year-old. 
Oh, please, miss, it's my birthday, but people let me do stuff on my birthday, please. Can I not have an illegal house? Oh, I, but I know there's a pandemic, but please. I mean, no other prime minister in history would have tried to work their birthday into a major crisis. You wouldn't have got Thatcher, whatever you think of her, saying you cannot replace the rule of law with the rule of the mob, especially not on my birthday. What do you think of Tony Blair at no point during the Iraq crisis? I know that people have very strong opinions about the case for war against Saddam Hussein. And I know a lot of people may question my motives, but look, I, I simply say this to people, look, I, it is my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> my God, incredible. There's a bit of it where some people popped in for 10 minutes. Uh, many of them gave me good wishes, wish me happy. You know, they don't, you don't need some less you're popular. You know, a lot of them signed a card. I, I was touched. Uh, a lot of them said I was the best boss they'd ever had. And I uh, know that really means a lot. But it's a sort of David Brent defence of what he said. Yeah, well, you know what? In a way, yeah, if what I did was illegal, then I'm a criminal, yeah? But you know what I think is against the law of the workplace? Low morale. So, in a way, yeah. He started referring, and see if he does this tomorrow, so he's fixed penalty notice, which means he broke the law as an FPN. Yeah, yeah, I'm good an FPN, and, uh, you know, I, I refer to the FPN. Like, mate, don't try and sort of, like, hide the facts of what it is. It's like, yeah, yeah, well, I've got an FPN and a, and a TSFN. Was that, oh, 10 strips for murder? But, uh, you know, uh, sort of give the acronym in the hope that it hides from the public the terrible crimes that he's committed. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, friend of the show, uh, he, um, he sort of defends Boris Johnson on a sort of philosophical level. He's risen to it. All the others try to get involved in the day-to-day. Jacob Rees-Mogg talks about these things, like the sort of hypothetical, well, of course, he has received a fixed penalty notice, but we must remember that a fixed penalty notice is just the police's point of view. And, of course, other points of view do exist out there in the world, and I, I would suggest, actually, in the multiverse, where any scenario can and indeed does theoretically play out, that there are now universes and, indeed, worlds in which the Prime Minister does not receive a fixed penalty notice. Uh, by the definition of string theory, that is currently happening. And I, I think it's important that in this world we do recognise that. Almost too realistic to be funny, really, isn't it? <laughs> Boris Johnson may have felt that his um, biggest problem was the police. Turns out it is the literal wrath of God uh, that he now faces. Uh, his policy to redirect uh, would-be immigrants to Rwanda. Uh, has been caught. I mean, fuck it, what a journey that is. You think you're coming to the UK and you end up in Rwanda. Who's going to run this? Ryan, eh? <laughs> My God. And the Archbishop of Canterbury has said is, <laughs> this policy is ungodly. You're like, fucking hell. He gets, he's broken the law and now he's basically going straight to hell. <laughs> what a week. I can't think of a promise that's had a worse week. Criminal and condemned to eternal damnation in the afterlife. And rightly so, of course. Um, I mean, it's the way they try and make Rwanda. I mean, you can't literally, if you were to do word association, you go Rwanda, genocide, that's literally the next word that comes to mind, right? They're trying to sort of spin it. No, 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 don't be anti-Rwanda. No, 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 Rwanda's absolutely fine. No, literally any, I mean, it sounds like a made-up policy. I genuinely think they would have been joking about what to do. And he's gone, well, we should just do ship them off to Rwanda. I'm pretty Patel's gone, that's a really good idea, actually. 
Because, you know, I'm right, pretty likely this bloody will do it. I mean, had he said, oh, I think we should blast them to Mars. That's where we would be this week. No, 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 a lot of people are just being anti-Mars. You know, the, the climate on Mars is almost breathable, and, uh, you know, you'll you, be you, 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 fine. He's not trying to defend it. It's remarkable, but... Um, Yes, apparently it's uh, uh, ungodly, according to uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, which, fuck it up. I mean, I, I didn't really have many doubts that Boris Johnson was going to hell, but I, I'd love to be there at the moment. Well, I, I, I thought I was going to heaven, but uh, St. Peter took a different view. And, uh, you know, for the time being, I have to accept that. Uh, and, of course, I'm not the first Prime Minister to go to heaven. It's been lovely to see Margaret again. Uh, it's been a real, real pleasure. Uh, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, if I was if I was Keir Starmer at Prime Minister's Questions this week, I'd be tempted to sort of lead with that. Can I ask the Prime Minister, is he worried about going to hell? <laughs> well, you want to talk hell down? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I always want to talk hell down. Hell has been a great ally to many people on this page. And he's, we're looking to do a trade deal with that. Yeah, you know, you so, uh, the people there... Order, order. Remind the leader of the opposition, thank you very much, that questions and promises can only involve the physical realm and not the theoretical afterlife, positive or negative. Out of deference to you, Mr Speaker, I'll rephrase the question. Can the Prime Minister, while based in the physical realm, entertain the idea that hell might exist? And whilst entertaining that thought, Mr Speaker, would he be concerned if it was real? Then he might end up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, bloody hell. Uh, some of the people that have been asked about this, brother, obviously with it being Easter, it's been a sort of too delicious uh, a parallel to draw. And Greg Hans, uh, a uh, Tory minister, was asked on Good Morning Britain this morning by Adil Ray whether had Jesus tried to come to the UK, whether we would have relocated him to Rwanda. Now, the obvious answer is, no, don't be silly, right? I mean, whether we would have or not, surely the quickest way to get that off your desk is to go, no, no, no. I mean, if Bart were anything else, you go, well, Jesus is the son of God, there'd be a VIP lane for people like Jesus. Don't you don't start getting bogged down in it. Well, he did, he gets bogged down. and go, well, look, that was, that was 2,000 years ago. Uh, this policy is uh, 2,000 years after the birth of Christ. <laughs> Take it as a literal question, you fucking idiot. Well, look, I mean, if he was coming with the disciples, I would say that they are 12 fit men. They're economic migrants. Uh, <laughs> You know, a lot of the concern is about small boats. That wouldn't apply to Jesus. Obviously, he can walk on water, so he <laughs> presents a different tactical threat. Um, but, of course, he does turn water into wine, which would be seen as a bribe, and therefore he would be turned around at Dover. Uh, um, so, ladies and gentlemen, tonight's guest is someone I've been a big fan of uh, for a very long time. Uh, she's been on the show before when I recorded it over Zoom, but this is the first time I've interviewed her properly face-to-face -face in person. She's only been an MP for five years, but already has become a hero, a heroine to so many people inside and beyond politics. She talks very honestly, very openly and very bravely about her own personal experiences. She's also very, very funny. Please give a huge welcome to Rosie Duffield! <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> right, so next time it's quite, and, and happy Easter. Yeah, happy Easter to you too. And I'm really disappointed. Where's the inflatable bunny? Because last week's inflatable Santa did a sort of disappearing act. I thought maybe we'd have a bunny this week. Yes, uh, if you weren't here for last week's Christmas special, I had an inflatable Santa. But people tend, I mean, people don't tend to like put decorations up for Easter, do they? They should. They, they definitely do they? should. Yeah. Well, like inflatable rabbits. 
Maybe. I, I haven't got one myself, but no, I'm sure I No, well, unless I'm... Mass- I mean, I'm a Blairite. I pride myself on being in step with public opinion. That <laughs> um, I, I, and, and certainly with symbols and things like that. I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm out of step. Maybe Easter has become the new Halloween. and it's become it very. Yeah. Well, I've got some Easter eggs, haven't I? Oh, no, and some baby shadows. Thank you, yes. Very nice. That's right. Uh, now, we should say at the start, uh, and I hope you don't understand this, mm. you have some form of facial infection do, that um, yeah. you, you do feel self-conscious about, but it was Slightly. best to address it, and that's why Rosie's brought on a bag with um, whatever <laughs> you've got Equipment, just in case. Yeah. I've got plaster, just in case it's really... So, I mean, you would never know, would you? I mean, you know, j- just to reassure... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what is it, just an infection on the other side? Just some really weird infection thing that just happened this Easter week, this holy week, and some <laughs> might say that it's because it was a sort of offshoot of COVID and you get more kind of infections and things, but I happen to think because I'm a lapsed Catholic. It might be because, it might be because I said the word penis live on Radio 4 in Holy Week. So I don't know, it might be just my punishment for that. You said the word penis? I did, live on Radio 4 on Tuesday, yeah. So and was that, were you, was you, were you insulting the person who was interviewing you? No, or was that? no, Emma Barnett said it first, to be fair. And okay. I was just answering the question as I do, so yeah. Oh, so, uh, well, I was going to come on to the gender thing. <laughs> I've raced I, there. I understand why now, yes, yes. So Emma Barnett asked mm. you about men having penises. She did, yeah. Or oh, women, re- in fact. Women having penises, yeah. yes, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and then you repeated the phrase. Mm. And now you've got an infected eye. Yeah. <laughs> it was a I few mean, days before Easter, yeah, so... I think know. it's very clear. That, My um, grandma was clearly watching or something. <laughs> <laughs> this is God's way of... Yeah, I think so. Shutting mm. you up. Um... I mean, I don't know if we do have doctors in the house. I mean, I, I, I suffer from something called blepharitis, um, which uh, can be similar. But I would, I would say that. a warm compress uh, for three okay, minutes. thank you. I'll try minutes. And lots of praying. And lots of praying, yeah. yeah. Just stop saying penis on I'll Radio 4 really if you hard. can. <laughs> Unless you're doing the news quiz or something like that. So yeah, that's probably that's fine. Okay. Um, but apart from that, did you have a good Easter? I did. I had a whole day off yesterday because I couldn't go to Canterbury Cathedral in case I infected... You know the Archbishop. I, I didn't. I didn't dare. And it just it, yesterday, I looked like Elmo. It was much worse. It was really red. So I stayed away. So I had a whole day in my mum's garden, which was lovely. Yeah. Sounds better. Well, the cathedral is beautiful, and it was very historic yesterday because the Archbishop got a round of applause live in the cathedral, which I don't think has ever happened before. So actually, yeah. you missed one of the best gigs in that cathedral. I know. How could I do that? I'm there all the time, and I missed that one. So yeah, I mean, annoying. surely, actually, if you're ill. Church is a good place to... Well, I mean, yeah, maybe I would have emerged cleansed and whole again. I don't know. <laughs> I should have done. Bailey's? Oh, yes, please. This was at your request. Now, I should <laughs> say, I've had this at home since a couple of Christmases ago. <laughs> <laughs> but I hadn't opened it until today. That's probably fine, then. I'm sure it's fine. Yes, I mean, you. if you manage to... Uh, how much should I give you? As much as you want. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm sure it's curing. You're not talking it? to the Archbishop now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay, well, is that, is that the sort of... Because st- without ice, it's hard to tell what a standard measure of No, it's is. lovely. Yeah, it doesn't need ice. Yeah, it'd be fine, wouldn't it? I mean, it contains milk, which is why I was worried, but... Um, Healthy, then. Yeah. Exactly. Calcium, it's which will help the thing heal. Yeah. So that's... Exactly. Uh, I, I think, that, I think mm. this is medically sound. Um, so... Um, Easter is basically over. The yeah. Politics is returning this week. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about the state of British politics at the moment? Oh my gosh, it's um, it's beyond parody, isn't it? I mean, you've just all of that stuff that you just did, all the stand-up stuff. 
If I was writing that a few years ago, people it we would just have been would better. Have, we would have said no, don't, no, it wouldn't, it very much wouldn't. But we would have just said that's too ridiculous. It's just too ridiculous. And Trump helped to kill comedy, didn't he, in satire? And it's just we're on that trajectory still, aren't Some we? Some of us did quite well out of it. No, yeah. you did. You've done brilliantly. But you know, it was—it's so beyond parody. It's so beyond ridiculous. It feels like all of it's made up, but it actually isn't. This is real. We're going through it. Yeah. And as someone whose politics are progressive and around the centre, around the mainstream. Mm. Do you sort of despair at the time in which you found yourself a politician? It's the most interesting time ever. I mean, you know, I came in just after that Brexit vote and it's been full on roller coaster stuff all the time ever since. And I'm someone who gets bored really easily and I haven't had a single day in politics where I've been bored. So that's brilliant. I love that. But it's also completely nuts, isn't it? It is, but you found yourself... I mean, I have this conversation with so many guests that you've only been an MP five years. Mm, yeah. And for a lot of MPs it takes... Exactly, your anniversary will be soon. Yeah, June. Um, are you going to mark the anniversary? Um, we'll probably be too busy trying to do interviews about the latest gaffe or penalty notice or whatever, but yeah, if we get time, I'm sure my intake, what's left of us, will have some kind of party. There's one or two in the audience, I think, tonight. But yeah, yeah, hopefully. And do you have, because people talk about, obviously, the class of 83 was... Tony Blair, Jeremy Corbyn, various others. Mm, um, yeah. Will the class of 2017, do you think, produce as many leaders? Quite a few of the 2017 Labour lot, because obviously we had quite a surge in 2017. Most of us have kind of gone, actually, or a lot of us have gone. So the few that are left there and uh, are still struggling through, I'm sure... Yeah, we get on, and we, we sort of mix together quite a lot. And, uh, and then there was another completely different intake in 2019. So... Mm, I don't know, leaders, future <laughs> leaders, that's a good question. I don't know about that. It must have been quite nice, actually, having those two elections back-to-back, because -back, <sighs> you were the new girl, and then all of a sudden there were a load of new girls, and yeah, then you really sort, of weird. sort of default. Uh, sort yeah, because well, in 2015, of course, that was the experience in 2017 of the 2015ers, so two years per election. Thank goodness it's been a bit of a longer break this time. Does Parliament sort of operate like that? Is there a, is there a seniority, not just about who's yeah. got what brief, but is there a kind of, oh, you're 2017, yeah. it's not it's your Yeah, it's like team. you're in year seven, now I'm in year eight. And like, it is, it feels exactly like that, it's hilarious. You see someone getting lost for the loo and you think, oh, it's not just me. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Do you enjoy it? Most of the time, I love it. You don't really, oh, it sounds really naff, you don't really get the chance to stop and ask yourself if you're enjoying it, because it is mad all the time, and you're just in this... You're just on this adrenaline rush all the time. You never really stop. I mean, politics doesn't stop, does it? It's 24-7. So occasionally you might, I might go and watch Corrie for half an hour, and I'm, back, I'm up to March now. So no one say anything about what's happened. But, um, but yeah, and that, you, that for me is nice, relaxing the real world. And then you go back into this crazy asylum, which is politics. Yeah, <laughs> it's mad. But there's, I guess there's two... Well, there's more than two elements. But if you're a Labour MP, you've got the... You've got the House of Commons, you've got the, sort of par mm. the parliamentary estate and the, the internal politics of, yep. of that arena. You've also got the Labour Party itself. And in mm. the last few years, the House of Commons has been tumultuous when you've been there and the Labour yeah. Party itself has been. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what has been the worst experience out of those two? Has it been the, the <laughs> moments facing your opponents across the House or no. the opponents inside your own party? I think inside our own party, if I'm being really honest, and I'm well known for that. Um, the, I think it's, it's the stuff in your own party, because when you're 
an ordinary person watching politics, you kind of identify, don't you, with your kind of, don't like the word, but your tribe, you know, your, your gang, you know, th that's, that's my lot, that's who I identify with. And you just see them as this one united group. When you actually go through that TV screen, go through the looking glass and you're there, it's so much more complicated and people are human and there's all of those human wranglings and disagreements that you'd get in any other walk of life. But before you get there, I mean, I had people on a pedestal for years watching some politicians and they're just human. So that is a little bit of a, a, little bit of a letdown, if I'm honest. But oh, true. so don't meet you here. So who are the people that you had on a pedestal? Oh, oh God, I can't, I shouldn't have said that, should I? Oh, I think all the people that I really admired and watched as a young girl have lived up to every expectation. You have people like Harriet Harman and Diane Abbott and people that smashed ceilings, you know, and Margaret Hodge and Margaret Beckett and those kind of people. And I look at them and I just think, wow, you've been here so long. Barry Shearman, 40 years in the house. And, you know, it took me a long time to even have the courage to say hello to some of those people because I just thought, what on earth have I got to say to those incredible people that they need to hear? Or, you know, I'm just this sort of no one and they're amazing. And I still get a bit of that. I still get a bit starstruck. I mean, it's, I, I can totally understand being starstruck by, I, I don't know, you know, people that you've always looked up to. Because mm. it must be weird to then be on the same yeah. benches as them. Really weird. But it, it's still, I, I, I guess that people would expect politics to be hierarchical, but not to the degree where you're sort of too intimidated to approach that, a fellow Labour MP. It's just me. I think, you know, I did, when I saw Diane Abbott in real life, I kind of thought, you know, there's this legendary Labour MP, and we're not from the same wing of the party by any means, but she broke so many ceilings and, you know, was a pioneer. And just, just watching her there, I just thought, oh, I'm in the same place. It's amazing. And have you spoken to her? Yes, of course, yeah. Did uh, you get on with her? Um, she's incredibly important and very busy doing lots of things we don't sort of all hang around together necessarily but you know I mean I'm, I'm just an absolute no one compared to her so we, you know it's not like we're having tea all the, all the time but she's, she's very pleasant yeah but have you gone up to her and told her how you feel about her um yeah I, I did and once at conference and I think she just thought who's this mad <laughs> ranting young woman you know but um yeah I mean I am quite intimidated by people like that still well you know what it's really I remember Chuck Ramuna talking to me about Diane Abbott because mm -hmm. I think in the modern era, understandably, there is a different view of her. Yeah. And I think perhaps younger people can forget what a pioneer she was and mm. whatever people think of her politics now and where she is and obviously some of the stuff she said about Russia. Yeah. And prior to that, people perhaps have forgotten what an icon she was yeah, to, to black people and to women, yeah. particularly on the left of politics. So it's quite nice that despite the political differences, you still hold a bit yeah, of Yeah, I mean, she's incredibly... She's such an important figure in our political history. So, you know, credit where it's due. And yes, of course, we don't agree on, on those kind of things. But, um, but still, she's still Diane Abbott, you know. <laughs> and you do think that when you're there. I mean, I do. I kind of think, Harriet Harman. You know, you have to kind of... I don't know. When that goes away, maybe it, that's time to go. But I'm still a bit like Alice in Wonderland. But these... These 2019ers must be like, oh my God, it's Rosie Duffy. I doubt it very much. <laughs> I doubt it very much. I say, I mean that seriously. People no. are rude to laugh. That's and okay. Let's be honest, you know, they're at a slightly different kind of intake. I mean, if you look at the churn of the Labour Party in the last five years or so, you know, it's been all over the place, hasn't it? So, so you find yourself an MP for Canterbury, a Labour MP for Canterbury, which mm. prior to that had basically been unthinkable. Yeah. You win it in 2017, you retain it in 2019, which are two 
political miracles. And <laughs> victories like that come because of a national situation, but they also become because of quality candidates who are capable of getting a personal vote. There's no doubt about that. So um, that 2017 victory, how much of that is down to Jeremy Corbyn? How much of that was down to Brexit? And how much of it was down to Rosie Duffield? I think it was a really weird coalition of all of those things. And I'd be, I'd be really wrong if I said it wasn't a lot to do with that surge of that Corbyn feeling weirdly for, for you know a man not in the first blush of youth he really engaged with much younger people and students and people that thought this is a new way of doing things and they wanted that and they wanted to break austerity and we had a big surge towards Jeremy and in that kind of really radical manifesto for the first time in 2017 I heard people talk about the manifesto on the doors so lots of those ideas really cut through we still didn't win I know we like to kind of pretend sometimes that we did in 2017 but um, but it really helped, and there was a coalition of anti-Brexit feeling in my patch, very pro-European, obviously we're next to Europe, um, and just the fact that I was prepared to give it a go, and I, I'd helped in the previous elections, but um, the last one, 2015, I was helping the candidate, and there were five white men on the stage, and I was the only woman this time, and I think people kind of noticed, you know, weirdly in 2017, but, but it made a difference, I think, to people. And so then how does it feel to, to come in? And at what point during that election campaign, did you at any point think you were going to get elected? No, never, ever, ever. It was impossible. And I think a week before or so, some polls, YouGov or something, kept saying that I was going to win. So I said to my boys, look, the polls are saying I'm going to win. I'm going to have to tweet that out and put that on my social media. Yes, I'm going to win here. I said, don't worry, of course I can't. That's just the thing that you say when you're campaigning. They were like... Are you going to win? I went, no, not in a million, trillion years. Don't panic, don't worry, of course I'm not. And then, like, I kind of, my son and I were on our way to the count, and I went, might be a bit close, you know, and I thought, that's it, you know, and then we'll go home tomorrow, I'll have to apply for jobs, it'll all be normal and fine. And then, yeah, I won. And <laughs> it was, it was, I was sick in the loose, actually, because I was so shocked. I genuinely went into shock. My, my mouth went blue. I started trembling because I, no one, I, there was, it was never going to happen. And um, I just didn't really, it took about five or six months for it actually to sink in. People kept saying things about me being the MP. And I went to a, a thing in Parliament <laughs> and there was, there, was a, there was a badge and it said Rosie Duffield MP. And I know that sounds stupid, but I saw it and thought, Oh God! And it just—I just thought, oh, this is this is a thing. It's it's real. It's not just a kind of pretend thing. I know that sounds nuts, but it's, it was a real shock. Nothing. Yeah. If you're not expecting to win, all, and uh, given how brutal British democracy is, mm. it's not like in America where the president loses and they still have six months in office or whatever. If you're an MP <laughs> that moment. Yeah. And then you're in the House of Commons the following week or whatever, and yeah. you're rapidly adjusting to. All the things that go with that, not just the fact that you now mm. have the platform that you coveted, but the pressure and the it's publicity so and the focus. And the whole thing. How yeah. did your boys feel about it? Um, they were just literally mentally spending the money that we'd never had, <laughs> thinking that I was suddenly rich and kind of, you know, they were excited. But, but I was really worried that, you know, they, I hadn't thought for a set, I hadn't rehearsed in my head, what do I do now? How do I kind of protect them from any rubbish they read about me or, or whatever? I hadn't done any of that. And people think you get trained for the media. or tra I woke up after sort of two hours sleep and there were people on my doorstep. And I, I just thought, oh, no one told me this would happen. You know, and I, I had no idea. I mean, yeah, you don't know. And I didn't, I didn't know how to warn them. I didn't know what was going to happen. It's so... Because 
having worked in politics, when people say, oh, these MPs, they have all their advisors. Like, <laughs> no, no. Most of them don't. Most MPs don't have, like, all no. these media advisors. Like, but people imagine it to be like the West Wing, <laughs> but, like, in every constituency office. You're like, most constituency officers, like, in a council office or, like, a former no, crack den or whatever. Yeah. And like, that's if you're lucky. That's if you're, like, in the shadow cabinet. We don't have <laughs> any crack dens in Canterbury, thank you very much. <laughs> but it is... It's, I wonder then how your kids, how your boys feel five years on. Um, they're just completely nonchalant about it, thank goodness. I mean, they don't look at the same social media that I'm on. They're in their own sort of silos. It doesn't bother them. Occasionally, they'll notice something or someone at school or, you know, they're not at school anymore, but someone will say something or kind of ask them about it and will realise that I'm the MP and stuff. And they're usually all right. You know, young people are quite polite, actually, to each other, and uh, mostly. So, yeah, they're usually OK about it, but I okay, do worry that's a relief. about that. Because mm. obviously one of the things that really concerns people at the moment is not just the abuse MPs face, but that that can be then targeted at their families. Yeah. Has that been an issue? Um, no, not yet, thank God. I'm really, really protective of them. So I don't care how much abuse I get, but come for my children, uh-uh. No chance. That'll no be chance. a warning. Let that yeah. warning ring. <laughs> <laughs> they, didn't, uh, they didn't ask for this. It's, you know, it's not their thing, and I didn't get to warn them. So, yeah. And were they, I mean, they must have been so proud, and they must still be so proud. I think they are, but um, I came home one night from doing Peston, and um, my youngest was there with his mate. His mate was glued to watching it and was like, but you've just been, you're just on the telly because it streams a little bit before you kind of got home. And my, my, my son was just like, I don't know, gaming in the kitchen going, oh, God. He was really annoyed that his friend wanted to watch me on telly. There was something else he wanted to watch. So, yeah, I suppose a bit proud, but, you know, not. Not embarrassing. Like, so. I've got months worth of Coronation Street. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you've, you're now an established MP. Five years now is like senior, given the churn <laughs> in, in, in British Maybe. politics. So, and you were a whip for a bit. Oh, for about two minutes. Yeah. Six weeks, I think. It was Something like that. that. Yeah. Did you enjoy being a whip? Um, I didn't really get the chance. I, I was just <laughs> baffled as to why anybody on earth who's ever met me for two minutes would make me a whip. It's all about, it's about like discipline and deadlines and being organised. I'm none of those things. Like you know, I, it's very easy to blame the ADHD, but I am the most disorganised person in the world. So the idea that I could make head or tail of those kind of voting things and just you know i just thought who on earth why me that's ridiculous but i thought i'd give it a go for a few minutes <laughs> <laughs> and was it ever explained to you why um no i i, don't, I think these these decisions seem to be random by people in Keir Starmer or whoever the leader is office, it seems to be like picking a, putting a pin in a piece of paper because you would imagine, well I did before I got elected, that someone with an area of expertise like, I don't know, say someone's been on benefits or has immigrants landing in that part of East Kent, maybe those are the things you might get offered if you know something about them, but no, whip, whip is what I was offered. I'm like, really? Okay. Give it a go then, but yeah. That's no, you know when you said if people come for my children, I was like, well, that's the sort of like yeah, fire and brimstone but, that a whip needs. Well, they told me they chose me. The chief whip did say it's because you're so nice, and I thought, well, that's really sweet, but I, you know, that's that's a nice thing to say. But you know, I'd rather have a cup of tea with someone than be a bit, you know, bossy about the whip. And oh. I broke the whip. You know, I broke the whip quite a lot actually. <laughs> so maybe it was their way of trying to get me not to do that. I don't know. Well, maybe. given the. Career trajectory of some of the people who've broken the whip. I mean, you, you'll probably be the leader in the next three years. That's I hope not. You was, <laughs> you, it, was, it was that ambitious breaking of the whip that marked Maybe you out as a high flyer, yeah. perhaps. Maybe. Um, 
So now, so you were whipped for six weeks, mm -hmm. and then did you resign to vote against the whip to keep Britain in the European Union, or, or were you fired? Um, I resigned, no, hang on a minute, what happened? I think it was more complicated than that. I think it was, I had said when I was asked to be a whip that, um, you know, really, I'm, I'm not someone who sticks to this very, very well, <laughs> you know, and I can't vote for the deal, and that, you know, that was coming down the line, but, but I think it was, it was hoped that perhaps I would. And then the, the deal was kind of the following Christmas when I'd already resigned as a whip because of the story about me breaking lockdown. I think that was all tied in with all of that. Um, and then the deal came through, and I was never going to vote for the deal. I, you know, I got elected by people who absolutely 100% trusted me to stick to my Ramoniest, Ramoni kind of um, pledges. And although I know the country has moved on in lots of ways, my neighbours are France. You know, it is very different for us in Canterbury and East Kent than it is to other parts of the country. And again, that's a weird one because Dover is so pro-leave and pro-Brexit. But my patch, a university city where we have so many links to Europe, still, we're still smarting from it and our businesses are suffering every day. You know, it, it affects us more than things that happen up north in this country. So I had to stay with that. And I would not have been forgiven by my electorate if I'd gone back on my word and voted for that deal. So it, was, it wasn't a difficult one for me. And it's just politically pragmatic, isn't it? I mean, the yeah. political parties, you know, they would rather keep that as a Labour seat. Um, sure. I don't know that they're particularly bothered about Kent, to be honest. I haven't seen anyone in Kent ever, really, from my party in five years. And Kent, the policies don't necessarily suit my, my sort of profile. So I kind of tend to do my own thing. You know, a lot of things are geared towards up north, the Red Wall, getting the Red Wall seats back, and I understand that. There's lots of Labour MPs in London. I, if I'm honest, I'm not sure the party knows what to do with Kent, it's, it's a bit of a weird one. It's kind of, you know, it's just me, you know, so I can kind of do my own thing in a way. Well, I do, anyway. Yeah. So I, mean, <laughs> I, I wonder then how much that has been crucial to your sort of, not political, persona's the wrong word, but so, your, your sort of political development or, or where you ended up is, is it that just your politics reflect that anyway? Yeah. Or as a result of having that, those conditions in your seat, has that led you to a place where... You've ended up being perhaps less collegiate than you would have been had you been a Red Wall MP or a London. Yeah, good question. I, I think it's more that I am led by my constituents and my particular area, and it isn't like any other Labour seat. You know, I'm quite rural. I've got loads of farms. I've got a coast. I've got the cathedral and tourism, and you know, we're kind of an hour away from London on the fast speed train. So it's pretty unique for a Labour seat, and it's a very kind of liberally kind of quite green area. And I am led by my constituents. I've, I've lived there half my life, and I know them really well. And that's always been more important to me than any particular party lines, if I'm honest. So. But uh, obviously, you came to the Labour Party yeah. as well. So uh, uh, what sort of age do you, <coughs> did you get political? Oh, I can't remember not watching political TV with my dad. Um, I can't remember not asking my parents loads and loads of questions. And politics was always part of our household. My parents were only 20 years young, older than me. And we talked about politics all the time. And my dad was a policeman in the city of London. So politics was kind of in our home because of what was happening with the IRA and the miners' strike and all of those things. We talked about them all the time. My parents were pretty lefty. So, you know, 
I understood their views on things. Their friends were all quite lefty, southeast London kind of people. And, and yeah, it was just always being talked about. I was always fascinated by it. So, and, and then when you start to get into politics for yourself, were you, were you like a teenage radical? Were you a Marxist? <laughs> Did you join the Young no. Socialists? No, but I was really interested in animal rights and animal rights. I did things like being a hunt saboteur at kind of 15. I stopped eating meat when I was kind of 14 or something. It was all that sort of the Smiths and you know, <laughs> all of that, really. So, yeah. Yeah, but not eating meat. I mean, just being a vegetarian, I guess it was more political back then. Yeah, it was um, for me. Sticking stickers on fur coats outside Harrods. That's one of my first um, political... Yeah. That's one of, yeah, that's one of and those. what did the stickers say? Um, you know, something like, I can't remember, it was that David Bailey campaign where the fur coat was bleeding. Do you remember that? Kind of a big campaign against fur. And yeah. I got really into that and saving foxes and things like that. And then I realised it was all to do with the interest I had in politics. And yeah. But there's one thing to stop eating meat and to put a sticker on a coat. Mm. Being a hunt saboteur, yeah. it's like a dangerous... That's like um, being in Jumanji. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't that dangerous, not really. Yeah. You're not in Kent and Surrey. I mean, you know, just, just got a pack of bloodthirsty hounds. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I suppose it was a bit radical. We'd kind of get up at four or five in the morning and drive to one of these, one of these meets and stuff and, and get out and protest and things. Yeah, it, was, it, was a bit, it felt a bit dangerous at the time, but, you know... I was quite young. So how old are you when you're doing that? Um, oh, God, I suppose by the time I did all that, I was probably about 18 or so. Yeah, my dad didn't want me to do it. He thought it was too dangerous. But um, Was he yeah, still a police officer? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he was on my side. <laughs> but, but obviously yeah. you wouldn't have done it in an area that where he no, would have covered. No, 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 no. Not many hunts in the city of London. Fair point, yeah. But was it, I mean, wh- what did being a hunt saboteur actually involve? Um, we just used to rock up and protest lots and try and stick together and not get sort of shot at by people on horses <laughs> and just made our presence felt, you know, we felt it was really awful what they did to foxes. They were ripping foxes apart and stuff, you know, it was really disgusting, gassing innocent animals, you know. It was pretty unpleasant. But do you have to, like, try and <laughs> distract the dogs or yeah, something? Yeah, no, I didn't do that bit. I just okay. kind of held a placard or something. I can't really remember. But, yeah, it was, it was fun. But also, you know, I knew I felt it was really important at the time. And what did your dad say to you? Look, I, I really respect you trying to stop fox hunting, but I have to remind you that as the daughter of a police officer... Um, he did have a few words like that, but he, was, he knew I would kind of do my own thing. <laughs> yeah. So then you go from... You didn't ever get arrested or anything. Well, no, but you had, a, you had a, an ally on the inside, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe that helped, I don't know. Um, so you go from being a hunk saboteur to then... Wh- what's the then journey to becoming a Labour MP? What are the other... Oh, God. I, I know, in a million years, someone like me was never going to be an MP. I didn't know what that looked like. It was kind of ordinary. I just thought that was some kind of posh people that kind of got that. I just thought, you know, I'll do my bit and I'll vote. And, you know, I sort of was political and ranted at people every now and again, but I didn't think it was something I could do or be part of. And, you know, I had children and did ordinary jobs. And then when they were old enough, I thought, okay, nothing really seems to be happening with the Labour Party in this area. It's going to be Tory forever and ever. Let's let's see what's going on. So I went to a local meeting and, you know, what CLPs are, you know, constituency Labour Party branches. I went along to my first one when my children were old enough for me to just throw a pizza in the oven and, and leave. And the, the meetings were behind my house and my mum would kind of come and watch watch the kids. And, Outside? Um, yeah, pretty much behind my house, pretty the building. So I, the first one I went to, there were nine people. And I thought, wow, okay. 
And, uh, and then it just sort of built up. And I, after I'd been there for a couple of weeks, someone said, well, do you want to chair the branch? And I thought, oh, okay. They probably wanted to shut me up because I was going, why aren't we doing this and this? And, you know, and um, yeah, so then I was a delegate at conference. Um, and then there was a 2015 election. And I was really involved in that campaign. Um, and then by the time it got to 2017, I'd got myself kind of, I was on the Joe Cox program and I, I, I was doing more and more, you know, and we had one session of the Joe Cox program where literally we were in a room and met each other and there were other counsellors and things. And I kept thinking, why have they chosen me? They've chosen me by mistake. This is mad. There were like actual counsellors there and I was thinking, what the hell? Um, and I thought, this isn't going to lead anywhere, but it's lovely. These are lovely people. And then there was a snap election called and 11 of us out of, I think it was 56, stood for election and two of us got elected during the during the thing so that kind of put a spanner in the works somewhat <laughs> you know i mean anyone who's been a member of a political party particularly the Labour party will tell you there are especially men who've been around the Labour party a long time and always think it's their turn and they go i'm going to be branch secretary then branch chair <laughs> then i'll be a councillor then be leader of the council be, and they have this whole thing mapped out mm. you just sort of go i'm going to go to a Labour party meeting and then it sounds like a fortnight later, you remember <laughs> Kind of, because it's Canterbury. It was completely unwinnable. So if, if now I said, right, that's it, I'm jacking it in, something like, you know, 80 people might go for my seat, but five people applied, Matt. You know, it wasn't a huge amount of competition. And I think I may have been the only woman and the only one that lived in Canterbury. So they kind of thought, oh, yeah, why not? You know, let her have a go. And during the campaign in 2017, I kind of, re I was enjoying it so much because, you know, there's nothing to lose. I just thought, I'm going to just be me. I'm just going to go for this and really enjoy it. And I did. And the regional director said to me at some point, we're trying to get people down to Eltham to help Clive Efford. And I was like, I'm in Kent, you know, and, and they were trying to ship students over there. And I went, I hope you don't mind, but I'd really rather just give this a go and, and kind of, you know, I'm really enjoying it. And I've got a chance of, you know, at least denting that majority a little bit. And I'd like to give it my best. And he was like, OK. You know, I didn't get any money or any organisers or any help. I just sort of did it. I think the branch had something like £7,000 in the bank, which to me seemed like a fortune. I thought... God, that's loads of leaflets, and you know, but but I think people spend a lot more than that generally, and um, I don't know really, but um, but yeah, so I just gave it my all, and and yeah, just sort of won. So <laughs> obviously, it's a, a sort of slightly modest about how and why you won and your personal appeal to voters and to the public and things. I, d I don't know. I think that, that was a perfect storm, like I said, of, of everything. And I was in the right place at the right time, you know. But then 2019, I'll, I'll be less modest because that was effing bloody difficult <laughs> just to even hang on to the seat. And, and my majority went up 10 times. I'm a bit proud of that, actually. You should be proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have to say it went up 10 times from 187. So, you know, that's the... <laughs> well, still, still, you know, statistics are important. Mm. Um, so, uh, I think one of the things that you've done very early, and, and obviously you did it, and it's partly why you got elected, and your attitude from the outset is just saying, I'm going to be myself and just say what I think. Mm. And I think on the whole, that benefits politicians, because that's the deal with them from the outset. And obviously... Boris is a very different type of character to you and Nigel Farage's, mm -hmm. but one thing that people like that understood was very early on, I'm going to set the terms of who I am, yeah. and then at least I don't end up in a situation that so many politicians end up in. The one thing Ed Miliband always says is he wishes he'd just been himself mm. in that election. He, think, he 
thinks he would have stood a better chance, whether he would have done this another question. But yeah. his analysis is, I got trapped, b b effectively reacting to politics mm. rather than just saying this is what I think and, and defending it. Yeah. I don't know how sort of grand a decision that was for you, but it strikes me that seems to be a better cause. No decision at all, because I was something like 45 when I got elected. You can't suddenly fake a persona. You know, my constituents know me. I was just local for a long time. And, you know, lots of those groups that I was involved with, like Canterbury Clean Air Campaign or Canterbury Society, they would look at me if I changed on stage and just go, what the hell? What? You know, these are my friends and family. I just sort of thought, what's the, you know, it, I, I wouldn't know how to do that anyway. And I think if you're really fake and sort of, you know, I mean, I'm sure the party wishes I was better at reading the top lines they send whenever you're on telly. I'm not very good at that, I have to admit. But, you know, I'm not good at remembering them and I'd mess up. And, you know, but I think people can see through it. I mean, what's the point? In, and also, you know, we're, we're always trying to get real, ordinary people elected, aren't we? Why, why get elected and then suddenly become something else? I was on benefits. I didn't earn enough money to pay tax. Just if I had to borrow the train fare to get up to Parliament on the first Monday from my good friend Pat, and um, you know, I couldn't, I, I didn't know what being a politician felt like, so it was just me, and I thought, well, I've won as me. If people realise, oh my God, we've elected this complete idiot who isn't a politician, which of course I thought they would in 20, 2019, um, then that would be my bit, my two years, boom, you know, but it seemed to sort of be okay, and I just thought, well, yeah, I mean, just carry on being me. What's the point <laughs> in trying to be something else? But then I guess if you're elected as a Labour MP, People do expect <laughs> the towing of some line <laughs> yeah. to some extent, then. Yeah, yeah. I'm not always great at that, am I? No. And do you <laughs> think... Uh, and, and is that because uh, you think, you know, it's fundamentally disloyal? Uh, or is it because no. the Labour Party's been in a position where it's been harder to defend? I think th there's a bit of both. I think if, it, if, the, if I was campaigning on something before I got here, and the lines change with the leader and the lines change with whatever focus groups we're doing. I understand why people change and say a different thing, but I just think it's fundamentally dishonest. You know, it, also, you know, this footage, you know, I was at the hustings in 2017 trying to get elected, and, uh, you know, me saying, I hate Brexit, I'm never going to vote for Brexit, I'm not going to do it, I can't. And then what? I'm going to vote for a deal in It's just so fake, and, uh, you know, that's more important to me. I don't want to do that. My mum would be like, really? You know, I, it's just not, I, I can't do it. And that's probably why I'm permanently super glued to the back benches, because, you know, I'm not someone who will do that. Well, you're there protesting against climate change. Obviously, yes, you're as super well. Yourself well, yeah, that's a huge thing. We're not making enough fuss about that, are we, actually? Um, party. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online 
you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So then, uh, 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 what's your experience like then with the Labour Party? Because obviously you're, you're of the left your whole life. You've yeah. grown up left-wing from a very young age and yeah. left-wing in, in a variety of ways. Um, but now you find yourself, perhaps, you know, you talked openly about considered leaving the Labour Party at times. Yeah. Um, is that still something that's under consideration? Not really. I mean, there is no other obvious party for me. I mean, you know, there's been much written about... And I have to admit, I'm such a wind-up merchant, and it always gets me into trouble because, (laughs) you know, there's stories about me defecting to the Tories. And I've got, you know, a lot of friends on that side because they're just human, you know, and and they're perfectly decent humans, a lot of them, um, away from the the politics and the differences. But, you know, they're just normal people. And, you know, when I read that I'm about to defect to the Tories, I have to admit I have occasionally kind of <laughs> wound people up and kind of gone along with it because it's hilarious you know I could I could know you know the idea that I who's the most Ramoni person still left in that group of 650 people could kind of suddenly become in you know go to a Brexit party and immigration you know they're my two sort of big things and you know it's ridiculous um, of course I'm not going to do that but but yeah I mean my party hasn't felt particularly safe and nurturing for me a lot of the time in the last five years, I have to be honest, yeah. So just on, because I've read those reports and they're written up totally seriously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so seriously that even, uh, uh, you know, gullible people like me completely felt for them. Yeah, no, it's, there have been offers, a a lot of, of, of offers and there's been a lot of kindness shown to me on that side, and I know people will say, well, of course there has, they only want you to, but but like I said, you know, everyone is human, and I have had some some really nice gestures and and comments from from that side of the the fence. And and how senior uh, uh, the individuals of these offices? (laughs) Extremely. Yeah, so you could say, Rosie, look, I, 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 I. (laughs) (laughs) Not, Not directly. Also, no. sort of Carrie says. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't talk about that anymore. No, no, no. But, but what you're saying is, when Rishi calls. No, Rishi. Rishi has not called me. No. Okay, so Other I mean, it wouldn't have. be Dominic Raab, would it? No. Uh, Pretty Patel. I'm not saying. I mean, come on. <laughs> me and Pretty on immigration. It's not likely, is it? No. But okay. So forgetting the fact that it's clearly Boris. Um, <laughs> uh, who are, the, who are your friends on the, on the Tory ventures? Um, I've, do you know what? You come into this thing, everyone, every, Labour activists particularly, especially on social media, have this idea that they're evil and that we're good, you know. And, of course, life does not work that way at all. And I've made friends with people on the other side that I would never, ever have thought that I would have anything in common with. But, you know, as kind of 
holier than thou as this might sound, I was on the Joe Cox programme. I do think about Joe a lot. And I think that simple thing that she said about having more in common, it does go through my head all the time. I'm here partly because of her. And I think about that when I have a conversation with someone like, you know, a new Red Waller like Mark Jenkinson. On the face of it, you would think I had absolutely nothing whatsoever in common with a new Red Waller, pro-Boris, pro-Brexit person like that, and, and you know, anti-asylum-seeking kind of politicians. But we do find things in common. We do talk. And, you know, I have made an effort, and I think they've made an effort to, to make friends and to find things in common. And you can. You can always find something. So you'd be surprised with who I'm friends with on that <laughs> side. <laughs> so what, uh, Bill Cash... Um, I don't know him. I don't know him at all. I'm no. trying to think of like who are the most Marc Francois. Um, do you know what? I mean, he's an, he's he's an interesting character. I was really kind about David Amos, and we ended up being yeah. on a program together. And he thanked me for being so kind. So there you go. He's he's not someone I would automatically imagine that I would get on with. But he's perfect. I mean, right. but this is this is the thing is that I mean, even I'm sometimes cynical. I mean, I think it's, uh, cynicism is healthy. But obviously, in any group of friends outside of politics, you have people that vote different Absolutely. ways. You have people that don't 100%. vote. People have opinions yeah. to the left, the right, the centre. Yeah, so you don't go into your sweet shop and ask them what their politics is before you decide on whether you're buying a curly whirly, do you? And yet, some <laughs> Labour activists on social media would... I mean, the first day I sat in the chamber, I'm not joking, I sat in the chamber and some of the more Corbynista types in my local party sent me an email criticising me for sitting next to Hillary Benn. You sit wherever there's a space on a bench, and I sidled up to this person, Hillary Benn, for God's sake. We were talking about Brexit, weirdly, surprise, surprise. <laughs> and um, I got some nasty emails about how dare I sit there. That, that is just so batshit crazy, but that is the sort of thing that activists sometimes imagine you're thinking when you get, you know, it doesn't work that way. I mean, you, last week you had Rosanna and you had Jacob Rees-Mogg and I'm sure they weren't spitting at each other in the corridor on the way home. You know, you have to get on with everyone. No, only, the one, only one of them spat. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will not say who it was. They actually got on very well. There was a very tender moment um, backstage where in, in the sort of handover, <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg was you know, genuinely sort of touching moment. There you go. So you were so brave. <laughs> <laughs> genuinely, like, genuinely she sort of is, and the, she was. Yeah, she, she is. Yeah, brilliant. she's amazing. Yeah. Um, but I think that's anywhere other than the sort of more tribal elements of political parties. I think people find it really refreshing, and they find it really re mm -hmm. reassuring that MPs from different wings. I hope so. But some people hate it and get really, really angry. Yeah, but they tend to be people who lose elections, and <laughs> you know, there's, there's a reason for that. <laughs> um, so. The current leader, Keir Starmer, uh, it, for, for a lot of people, is a huge change from Jeremy mm. Corbyn. Yeah. But at times, you have said, uh, in some ways, he, he hasn't been. Now, I don't know if that's mm. just to do with the Gender Recognition Act stuff or whether that's other things. I think, for me, it's been uh, the atmosphere, the, the kind of way the Labour Party is set up, and it's something you know well. It is disappointingly... I don't know, the word misogyny gets banded around so much. Maybe it's sexist. It's just, I think it's a party that's over 100 years old now, and I think it's, it's disappointingly male at the top still. At the top. You know, the institutions. <laughs> you know, 
that the people in the in the the people making decisions on policy, for example, and the people who sit in an office somewhere. I mean, I don't know who they are. All these people whose names you kind of get banded around. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not in the inner circle. I'm not in the clique. I'm not. I kind of. I haven't been in the Labour Party since I was kind of 12 and NUS and whatever. You know. So I'm never going to be in that inner circle. But it is so nepotistic, and it is so a boys club and that has been so fundamentally disappointing it's a bit like it's it's like father christmas taking his beard off it is a bit like that because i had this you know i had this ideal that it was kind of paradise for someone like me because i depended on the last labor government i mean i can't overemphasize that sure start and tax credits saved me and my children and changed my life um, you know, it, I was, I was, you know, there's a sort of definition of poverty that, in fact, the last Labour government brought in, and I was really shocked to find that I was kind of below that level. And I sound quite posh, and you wouldn't think that, but, you know, I went without food and things, and it was just ordinary, it was my life, and I thought these superheroes who'd given me tax credits were going to welcome someone like me, an ordinary Labour voter who'd been on benefits, not one of them ever has asked me how I won Kent. How can we win more Kent seats? How do you win, Rosie? You know, how did you get ten times more your majority? Um, what's it like being on benefits? Do our policies reflect real life? You know, none of that stuff. No one's ever asked me my lived experience. And yet, I'm an ordinary Labour voter. I am profoundly disappointed by that. I'm not a political pundit. I'm not an Oxbridge PPE graduate. You know, I haven't been in that Labour in a circle. You would think that an ordinary voter who made it, and there's a few of us, me and Tonya Antonianzi and a couple of others who got elected in 2017 were single mums, you'd think that when they were coming up with policy about those things, maybe they'd ask someone who was there. But uh-uh. <laughs> Not a chance. Purely playing devil's advocate. Mm -hmm. Is there a sort of more charitable explanation, which Probably. is like <laughs> politics is chaotic? Uh, um, yeah, maybe. You know, they're just they've got a million and one things on their mind. They don't always consult the right people on any policy area, mm. and um, something like that. Possibly, but if you can't reach out to an ordinary voter who was dependent on the things that your last government put into place, and you can't even ask them, I don't know, come and tell me what it was like. You know, if you can't do that. How does someone like me, who is that person, persuade other people like me that the party is listening? Ask, answer me that. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just being honest. I'm too honest, which is why I'm always going to be the But, you know, it's, I think it's about time that perhaps the party stopped being so damn reflective of itself and in, in a people, you know... Keir Starmer might say, well, I've got so much respect <laughs> for, for Rosie. So much respect. I've got 200 odd Labour MPs. You know, if I, if I consult all of them, no time to do anything else. I'm sure he's right. And that's, you know, but I don't think Keir was even a backbencher, was he? I think he got elected in 2015 and was straight in uh, in the front bench. And, I, I, you know, his life before was, I think, pretty modest when he was growing up and, and then he became a lawyer. But I think it is very, very easy. It's very easy to, to sort of 
be in your bubble, the Westminster, famous Westminster bubble, you're suddenly kind of recognised, you're suddenly this sort of different person, your life does change, but if we lose touch with the kind of people that maybe believe in things that we don't necessarily, and I get the feeling that, I was listening to the radio yesterday and there was a poll about who cared about party gates and who didn't, there were some really angry people phoning in and saying that they didn't care and they were sick of the Labour Party talking about it. Now, obviously, I care. We all, you know, and I know people who do care, but I'd say the country is kind of Brexit split. It's about 50-50. And I don't know that we're listening to those more awkward and difficult messages coming from people. And that goes for me too. I'm a massive Ramona. I have to listen to the people in my constituency and my party and cab drivers and my friends and the older generation who were leavers who think I'm a nutcase for, for being still a Ramona. You know, if we don't listen and hear them and understand why people don't really care about Partygate, we're just preaching, aren't we? And that goes for the MPs as well. We need to listen to people with all kinds of different experiences, I think. One of those different experiences, you know, everyone thought Brexit was the most divisive debate the country <laughs> was ever going to have. And now there's another debate that's come <laughs> along. Uh, and for most of us, this wasn't a debate that looked like it was ever on the horizon. This is a debate that seems to have taken most of the country by surprise. Most of the country either seems to not want to go near it or not even sort of understand how to get into it. That is the debate around sex-based rights. Yeah. The difference between sex and gender, the Gender Recognition Act. So, as someone who is, I'll be honest, petrified <laughs> of this <laughs> arena... Just walk me through it step by step. A am I right in saying that the reason we've ended up having the debate like this mm -hmm. in these terms at this time is amendments to the Gender Recognition Act, or is it before that? I think it's before that. So what's the before? Okay, I think, oh my gosh, I'm not going to bore you to death with boring policy, but basically women particularly started to notice and started to message people like me and Jess and others that... The Gender Recognition Act and making it easier, as is our party policy, to self-ID, to declare which gender you want to identify with, could also make clash with the rights of women, for example, in sport and single-sex spaces. And if we don't at least have that conversation, it's possible that that could happen and then we're going, oh, now what? And that's all people like me want. We just want the conversation. However, for the last two or three years that people have been trying to get the Labour Party to have that conversation, people like me and a few other MPs have been told, it's a real niche thing. Let's ignore it and it will go away. It's not a thing that the country really particularly is bothered about. And I think three years ago, when people were messaging me about it at the beginning, that is possibly true. But my instinct as a person and as a politician who sort of gets it was... Hang on a sec. More and more people are talking about this. We need to have those conversations. We need to at least be able to without being afraid, without messing up our messaging, or even to get it wrong and admit that we've got it wrong, or to just say that we're learning and we're listening, and that's all I wanted, and I haven't succeeded very well because in the party. <laughs> I mean, it does seem to be a fundamentally progressive position to say, analyse any legislation for the people you might not be thinking of immediately yeah. when this legislation is passed and to 
consider people who <laughs> are about to take life-changing decisions of their own bodies Absolutely. and ensure that they're fully supported yeah. before they take that decision. Yeah. That feels like an essentially, fundamentally, labour position. You would think. That you're in. Yeah. Now, again, playing devil's advocate, being charitable with people who've effectively been perhaps taken by surprise by the, mm. the ferocity of this debate and, and the strength of feeling and everything else. Why do you think they've struggled? Why do you think some politicians have struggled to answer basic questions about what a woman and what a man is? Because I really believe that if you are in that Westminster bubble, so much so that you've got a very safe seat, you don't even need to knock on doors yourself. And I know quite a lot of MPs, particularly around London, that don't even have to knock on a door. Whereas if you've got a small majority, not only do you enjoy it, but actually you want <laughs> to do that and you need to do that to, to win votes, you're more in touch with people on that level, I think. So in 2019, three things came up on the door in Canterbury. Jeremy Corbyn and anti-Semitism, almost equal. Uh, Brexit for me, because of my patch and the way it came up. And a few women actually took me aside, asked to speak to me in private and rose this. It was before I'd ever even really decided how I felt about the issue. But they spoke to me in private about it and I thought, wow. That is no, hardly anyone stopped me about any other thing. No one was interested in that election, in our policy of planting loads and loads of trees. I mean, I, was, I thought it was quite great, actually. <laughs> but, um, but no one was talking about privatising, uh, putting companies back into public ownership on the doorstep. Nobody, not once ever. Um, even Labour Party activists weren't that bothered about that at the time, because we had this whole Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn thing going on. Um, but that did come up. And I think if you... If you are so sure of your place and you are telling voters, you did a piece in your sketch about telling the Prime Minister saying what are the country's priorities. Yeah. I think if you're the opposition, you can be just as blinkered if you are not actually really listening to your friends or your neighbours or your community. This is being talked about in the women's groups that I'm part of. And, you know, and I feel like I've been trying to tell this to the party. You know, women's in sport have been mentioning about it and I think if you do if you're so fixated on the things you think the public want to hear about and will vote about and that you write in your manifesto maybe you lose sight of some of those issues I think it's a lesson don't do that listen to people and do you think politicians are scared of this debate yeah oh yeah completely yeah I mean it's it's Politics is a scary place, you know, particularly women get a lot of abuse online and a lot of threats and, you know, when I'm in my constituency, the police have to know where I'm going to be all the time and, and all of that and it becomes part of everyday life and I think going into a debate which is really toxic, where you're potentially going to hurt and, and pee off and upset a group of people as well, that's, that's also the other thing. It's not just that people are wimping out of it, it's you know, it, you have to know your stuff. I know my position. I've thought about it a lot. And I've talked to a huge, huge amount of people about this. I've read a lot. You know, I'm quite confident in how I feel about it. It doesn't mean that I won't change my mind or, you know, keep attention on the argument. But, but yeah, I think you need to, if you're scared of going there. I mean, I wouldn't go on Peston and talk about economic policy because I know my limits. <laughs> I can't do that. I'm not Rachel Reeves. But I think if you're scared about talking about something, find out more about it or talk to colleagues. I don't know. 
it's not that hard. You're going to be asked. I mean, look at people being asked about women's bits and stuff, and men's bits. <laughs> it's going to happen, you know. It is. And I, um, I mean, obviously, you talk about the abuse there. Mm. You've been called a transphobe. Yeah, yeah. How does that make you feel? It's quite hurtful because when you're, when you're told that you are hateful and you hate a group of people, it's, there's no way I hate any group of people, not in a million years. I, uh, no, not in a million years. But, but at the same time, if those people think I do, then my messaging has been wrong as well, and I need to be more careful. Um, I really don't hate anyone. I don't want any group of people to not have any rights. Far from it. They, of course, need and deserve human rights, like everyone. But my concern has been, where does this leave women's rights and women in sport and those kind of spaces that people like me have actually potentially needed and that is paramount to me. So And I'm presuming trans people have been in touch with you. Oh yeah, 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 of course. And I've had some great conversations with friends who happen to be trans and, and all of that, you know, and it's been really thought provoking and, you know, Almost as soon as we start to talk, we realise that we get on and we're not actually in a polarised kind of position at all, that we get it, we get what each other are trying to say. It's just about having those conversations, but you can't have those conversations um, on social media. It just doesn't work. But in real life, absolutely, it's a completely different situation. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's one of those debates where plenty of people will get in touch with you in private. Yeah. And express solidarity. I had, uh, on one day, I think it was 2019, I got 450 bunches of flowers in one day because, um, and that's not a showy-offy thing, I was really over, I was really, I didn't do anything, I was really overwhelmed by that and my care homes were thrilled because, you know, but, um, but it, was, it was women letting me know, you know, and I've had thousands of emails and thousands of letters and obviously some people saying that they don't agree, of course, but the majority, by far the majority, have been thank you for saying things that other people haven't. So, or starting the conversation, even you know. But it, I mean, it's it, it's such a. I think West Streeting's one of the few people that I've seen mm. <laughs> that's capable of saying. Yeah. Uh, I defend the rights of trans people. Absolutely. But you don't stop using the word woman. I yeah. Mean, it, it, I think that's where most people are. Yeah. I, I may be wrong about where British public opinion is. I think so. I think most people want everybody to be safe, but that includes women who are going to have been traumatised, say in prison. Most women in prison have, been, have got there because of some violence or a, a really toxic relationship with a man, and that is so important. And another thing that you know, I slightly hesitate to say about my own party, but... The reason I get so angry about, I went to an event talking about women in prison, this is a class issue. The Labour Party should be there for women in prison and working class women who don't have the voice. And it's all very well us trying to be elite and London-y, but that won't wash. If you are a woman who's been in an abusive relationship and is looking for politicians to protect you, and if you've been trafficked and you've had to commit crimes because a man is basically making you, you will not thank politicians for not protecting your space. That's my job. So, would you have these conversations internally with the Labour Party? Not really. We don't have them. Not really. Well, I mean, Keir met with me, I think, a week before conference. But I think the poor guy, I think he was baffled 
I don't think he understood that this was going to be coming down the track. And that was when he was on the Mar programme during conference, you know, live being asked about cervixes. And he hadn't <laughs> prepared. You know, I, I think he probably thought I was a little bit bonkers and it was just this sort of niche thing and, you know, they're there, it's fine. But, you know, I, I wouldn't want him to have been as embarrassed or ambushed by the press as he has been, but I did bloody well try and warn him, you know? <laughs> and, you know, again, you do feel like as a woman in the party, you are kind of dismissed when you try and say, actually, guys, you know what? I mean, I walked into the conference in 2017 and my face was on these giant screens everywhere. And it was Brighton that year, I think. And that was a bit weird and overwhelming. And man after man after man stood on the stage and said, we won Canterbury, comrades. Jeremy, Len, Ian McNichol, not one of them mentioned my name. <laughs> not one of them. And I thought, oh, okay, okay, that's all right. But we didn't win Canterbury. I didn't see any of them in 2017 in Canterbury. I haven't seen any of them since in Canterbury. So it's, it goes back to that thing of, do you know what, Keir? I kind of might know something. I sort of might know a little bit about this issue. I'm here to help and advise you. I'm broadly on your side. Okay. <laughs> so if, if Keir is listening to this podcast... He won't be. He won't be. He won't be. Why not? Because... Podcast. Sorry, no offence, but, you know... <laughs> I mean, if, if I mean, he might listen to the other to. ones. I'm sure he listens to the other ones, but I, I doubt he'll want to listen to me, I mean, really. You know. But if someone in the leader of the opposition's office is mm -hmm. listening to this, if not for pleasure... <laughs> Purely to get Just ahead to of see whatever, if they can get rid of whatever me. news lines yeah. might be, you know. Um, they might go, actually, this is a really good podcast, Key. You should start subscribing. <laughs> to this, you know, leave a five-star written review. And, Obviously. And say, um, what, would you, what would you say to them? Um, I'd say at some point soon, and the reason I did an interview saying I didn't feel that things had changed much between Corbyn and Keir wasn't a personality thing. It wasn't then. It was about the teams around them. It was about the people that they pay what we read is a huge amount of money. And Labour politicians pay a couple of hundred pounds a month as a sort of levy to the party. So I guess we're paying for these consultants that we keep reading about. It would possibly be a good idea at some point, at some level, to maybe talk to all MPs, perhaps the backbench ones, perhaps the ones that were just Labour voters before they got into this position. Maybe listen, because maybe we might know something. You, uh, you met with J.K. Rowling recently for, yeah. for lunch at the, at, the, at the River Cafe. I mean, yeah. we've, we've got some, um, you know, we've got a couple of Easter eggs and some baby sham <laughs> and some Baileys. Um, was it this sort of fair? It was the poshest restaurant I've ever been in. <laughs> yeah, it was very posh, very, very nice. I doubt I could afford to go there ever again. But no, it was, it was really nice. And I just thought it was just a bunch of mates getting together and we might have done the odd selfie for Instagram or something. And then it went a bit mad, didn't it? But um, yeah, it was really good fun, actually. So obviously you've got a lot of coverage. Uh, a lot yeah. of the other people there are prominent feminists and campaigners mm. and things and you're all united on the... Gender Recognition Act and the politics around it. One of the yeah. other people there was Joanna Cherry. Yes. Uh, who is friend. a pro-independent yeah. Scottish National Party <laughs> Member of Parliament. And if people know anything about JK Rowling and, and her mm. politics, obviously uh, very passionately anti-independent. Absolutely, yeah. That tells a story about how quickly 
dividing lines in politics are getting yeah. redrawn. Everyone thinks these constitutional issues are the things that, that may divide the body politic and, and, and the public. Yeah. Those sorts of divisions, which look like the most ferocious ones, mm. Brexit, independence, mm. take your pick. These are now being put to one side over something like this. I mean, yeah. obviously the, the, the people in that room tell that story uh, quite profoundly. Do you think this is the, the next big divide in our politics and does it have the potential to, uh, just as Brexit allowed Labour to win places like Canterbury, do you think it would have an electoral impact in any parts of the UK? I think it could possibly have. On the one hand, we're being told as a party that we're chasing that red wall almost to the detriment of any other area. You know, I certainly don't get politicians talking about or visiting Kent. There are bits of the south and the southwest that kind of don't feel like we're part of the Labour kind of programme, which is the Red Wall. But at the same time, we're also being told that those are the areas that are most socially conservative. Try getting your head around why we're talking about all of this with self-ID then, because I don't know which direction the party's going in with this, but listening to people, trying to get a nuanced position would probably be a good idea. But yeah, but this, this idea of dividing... I mean, one thing I learned almost in the first week in politics was you're a woman first, then you're a party politician. So, you know, that's why women across the house are friends. And Joe and, and Joe Rowling totally campaigned in the opposite direction. And yet they're united on this. But when you say you, you, you learned that first, was it that that was something that <laughs> your experience of the system made you realise, actually, as a woman, this is fundamentally different to a male experience? Yeah, very or was much. it that female colleagues came to you and said, look, you need to know a, what to do? A bit of all of those things. In the first week, um, a Labour MP, a man, came to me and said, you're going to watch all this crap happening to you just because you're a woman MP. And I went, oh, sure, that's exaggerated. And sure enough, within the first couple of weeks, I would tweet almost identical lines, like the party lines, and a man would do it, same kind of level as me, backbench chap, you know, not a huge profile to begin with, and I would get abuse, and he wouldn't get any at all. He would get retweets or likes or whatever, and I would just start getting the sexist stuff about being a bimbo, and all that stuff, because I'm blonde, and all that boring stuff, what I look like. And then, of course, my other friends, like Marsha de Cordova, would get that, and then the racism. And you just think, from, from the offset, that's where we are. It's, it's really brutal, yeah. I mean, there must be part of you that wishes you'd not got involved. Um, the actual day-to-day -day job of being an MP is bloody brilliant. You know, the stuff that never makes the headlines is that you got someone's PIP assessment sorted and you might get 30 of those a month. Or, you know, somebody who's waited for the council to repair their mould and their dam. I mean, that's the stuff that we do every single day. This headline stuff, that's kind of a tiny weeny part of the everyday job. Getting uh, refugees over, getting their, their visas processed, uh, leaning on the local council to provide more money for the homeless shelter. All of those kinds of things um, are the everyday, and I absolutely love that. And this stuff, you learn to love it. At first, I hated it. I didn't join the Labour Party or become an MP to be a celebrity, but very early on, my love life became a bit of an interest because I was a single woman when I got elected. And, you know, then I spoke about something very personal in the House. And I seem to be then sort of in the headlines a lot for those sorts of things as well. And you can either go crazy and run away, or you can just go, okay, this is where we're at. Yeah. You used your platform in the House. It was probably the first time, really, that the country realised who you were when you spoke 
I mean, exceptionally movingly about your experience of domestic abuse in a way that I don't know how you summoned the strength to <laughs> go there and certainly in that place and talk so well. Um, even thinking about it, you know, it's a very emotional thing. I can't imagine what it was like for you to summon the strength to go to the House of Commons and say those things. I felt like I had to. I'd been at Labour Party conference the week before and it was in Brighton. My ex had moved to Brighton and he tracked me down and stalked me in a restaurant and threatened to kill me. And I thought, do you know what? The domestic abuse bill is coming up next week. Did that during the Labour Party conference? Yeah, because I was just outside the safety zone and he came into a restaurant I was in with a couple of colleagues and made it very clear that you know he was going to kill me. And that, that's when you're most in danger when you've kind of ended a relationship and... It was a few months after I'd done that, and I just thought, look, you know, I know what this is like, and he's probably going to hurt me at some point. You know, I was completely... You come to a point where you just... You can't control everything, and I just thought people should know that everyone is vulnerable to this. Everyone makes mistakes in relationships. And I think if women were watching... Well, they were, it turns out. But I, I wanted them to know that we weren't just doing the thing where we read statistics and we don't understand. And there were 650 people there. Statistically, quite a few of us will have been in a similar situation. And MPs afterwards, a couple of them, have said... I mean, one came up to me and she said, you see this scar? Or, you know. And um, I just thought... I just thought I had to do it, really... I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as you say, other people will have had the experience, they might not have mm. taken that step of well, talking yeah, about it. Maybe. But that, I mean, I just... People listening to this, people here tonight, people prior to this, will have looked at you and thought, well, this is a rising star, this is someone who is talented, can win it, the unwinnable. <laughs> um, has the bravery to stand up and talk about your lived experience uh, and to talk um, in a sensitive way about difficult issues that other people aren't going anywhere near. In any other time, people would say, you're going to be the next leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> no way. No. No. I mean, come on. I'm way too controversial. I'm far too much a Blairite scumbag, centrist scumbag, brownite, whatever I am. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm no good at pretending not to be that. So, you know, that's not going to win me any friends or any union backers or anything. And, you know, I mean, I, I, Keir had to sort of unite after a really horrible time, didn't he? And he had to appeal to kind of both sides. That's a really difficult thing to do. Um, yeah, I can't imagine why anyone would want that job, I have to be honest. But we do have to have a woman next time, without question. That's, you know, it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, it is... Ma I, I, I worked briefly for the Labour Party. My brief time working for it convinced me that it's effectively institutionally sexist. Yeah. See, it's the, not just me then. The, right, no, okay. like, and it's not just—it's not even a left or right thing. This was years before. Mm. It's when Tony Blair was leader. Okay. Just at a, a, a branch level, a, a, an organisational level, it yeah. is stacked in favour of men, and it just. There's basically a sort of time lag where men have most of the positions and it's their, they genuinely think it's their turn next, no matter mm. how good they are. I have to say, though, a man stood aside for me in 2017. Hugh Lanning, who was the candidate in 2015, decided 
just why not give me a go? Yeah. And and I'm really grateful to him for doing that. And he he was very different political t- politically to me. Friend of Jeremy, you know, really left wing. And you know, he might well rue the day. That he, <laughs> <does>. <laughs> he probably does. I'm sorry, Hugh. But um, but he he decided, you know, to give me a chance. And and we had more women candidates in Canterbury actually in history than we've than we've had men. So. You know, it was just the timing, I guess, and everything. But but a man did stand aside for me, and I'm I'm grateful for that. But we need to do that more. You know, white women need to stand aside for for our black sisters, and you know, we we need to do that kind of thing more. Otherwise, change won't happen, will it? No, that's true. Um, I wonder what your relationship is like with previous leaders. Uh, Angela Rayner said that she and Tony Blair occasionally text each other. Um, <gasps> Gosh, I get a Christmas card from him. <laughs> I've never met him, but uh, oh no, I have met him actually. I met him. He came to speak at a, a press lunch in Parliament. And I said, "Hi, I'm Blairite Scum," and he kind of <laughs> was a bit <laughs> taken aback, you know. Even I'm but, not. Um, yeah. <laughs> just kind of, you know. But um, but yeah, he seemed very nice. Just a bit kind of, oh, what's this, you know? But um, but yeah, I mean, he's apparently very a very decent guy. I mean, uh, Gordon Brown is my kind of, you know, I think he's absolutely amazing, and I go and listen to him speak whenever I possibly can. He's probably like, oh God, that's that weird stalker again in the front <laughs> row. But um, I think he's fantastic and still really, really on top of what's going on now, actually. And yeah, I don't know any other previous leaders. Well, Jeremy, I Jeremy. Ed, 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 of course. <laughs> yeah, I don't know him very well. I don't know him very well at all. He, he sort of does his own kind of thing, actually. Mm. That's, not, that's not a criticism. I just don't really know him. No. I, I just wonder, because sometimes, you know, these... Mm. Sort of friendships evolve, and I, I was, it was t- I was totally taking yeah. a punt, wasn't suggesting anything. Yeah, Angie um, and Tony, that's an interesting one. But I think I can't defy anyone not to like Angie. I mean, she's very funny and just so completely normal and not judgy, and you know anyone could talk to her, so that doesn't surprise me. But given that the, the next leader of the Labour Party needs to be a woman, mm. would you ever stand? No, honestly, no, no way, no. Why not? Because I've only been in the, you know I've only been in MP five minutes. I haven't had a proper kind of job in the party or anything I don't feel at all qualified and I'd be you know I back Jess Phillips and then Lisa so you know what do I know about about being a leader well they're both very popular people well I really really believed in both of them yeah I really did but um no I can't believe anyone would want me okay so if if it's because you've only been an MP for five minutes no it's loads of reasons I just no one votes for me sort of 10 years time I don't think so. Oh, God. I can't imagine it. No. What, have you already got an exit strategy before today? I don't know. I just, I can't. You never think you're going to be an MP that long, do you? I mean, my predecessor was in the job for 30 years, but, you know, it's not, Canterbury isn't, you know, a safe Labour seat now. You know, I'm going to always have to really, really work hard to gain those votes, and that has got to take my focus, really. So. Okay, well, it's time to. Uh, for me to last one else to take the focus, I'm going to take two quick questions from the audience. If we can have uh, very quick questions, uh, one sentence questions, please, and one sentence answers. Uh, yes, the lady down there. Hello, Rosie. Um, Hi, I can't see you, but hello. And I'll repeat <laughs> the question with the podcast, which I know is frustrating. But uh, thank you very much for standing up for women's um, sex spaces, firstly. Um, secondly, I wonder if you think that the Respect My Sex campaign that started a couple of weeks ago is going to have much of an impact where there's been much talk about it within the party. Yeah. Is the Respect My Sex campaign going to have much of an impact? Is there much talk about it within the Labour Party? It's really hard to know, because in my kind of world, it has had a big impact. I know those women well, and I think women are asking their... It's the campaign where you ask your local candidate what they think about you know, the issues for women and women's single spaces and women's voices in politics generally. And um, 
I think it's a really powerful movement. You know, at our peril, politicians ignore women. We're activists, voters, donors, you know, the foot soldiers of any party, as well as men, obviously. But, you know, we vote, we spend money. Listen to us, or else. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great question. And what was your name, sorry? Sam. Sam. Thank you very much for that, Sam. And another one over here. Um, given the conversation we're having about Elon Musk buying Twitter, I wonder whether you think what Twitter needs is more moderation or less. Ooh. Given the conversation about Elon Musk, uh, does Twitter need more moderation? And is it Hannah over there? It is. I thought it was. Really Thunder good mind. question, really good question. I don't know. I mean, I'm all for freedom of speech, hugely, actually. But there's an awful lot of hate on there. And like I said, you know, MPs who are black get an all, you know, and everyone, the racism on there and the anti-Semitism is... Horrific. It'd be nice to see that moderated. So maybe not necessarily more moderation, but but maybe a cleverer way of doing it. I mean, God, I don't know about these things. I, I'm lucky that you know MPs get their women MPs particularly get their social media looked through by the parliamentary security people. So when we do get death threats, we often don't see them. But you know, just beware. All the people that do make death threats, you will be seen, and it will be being investigated by by the security services. But I, I don't get to see them. But I'm not sure I know the answer. Sorry, that's a really... No, it's OK. No, I mean, it's, a, it's an honest answer. Um, OK, so, uh, yes, the last question to the lady in the middle. Um, you became a politician because you wanted to change something. What mm. do you want to change? You became a politician because you wanted to change... What do you want to change now? Is that the end of that? What do you want to change now? Oh, there? my God, there's so much. But, uh, oh, what can I... I tell you, there's, there's one very personal kind of campaign that I would really like to see, and this is for selfish reasons... I would really like the child support agency, it's now called the Child Maintenance Service, to be raised to the ground and started again. And if there's one thing I could achieve, it would be that. I'd like a new hospital for, for East Kent, that would be fabulous. And I'd like us to stop threatening to hose migrants across back across the channel. <laughs> Essential Rwanda. No, all, all, great, uh, all, all great points. So, um, Sam, you were first. Would you like the... Uh, twirl, the orange twirl, or uh, the trio of baby sham? <laughs> <laughs> That's an actual thing. It's got to be the orange twirl. <laughs> if you could pass that backwards, please, so <laughs> some would be very grateful. Hannah, the trio of baby sham or the twirl? Oh, I want that egg. Oh, I want that egg. Um, sounds like a feminist slogan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't realised, actually, that... There could have been some... Uh, yeah, anyway. Um, so, the trio of baby sham, if you would like them. Can we somehow, if you wouldn't mind, sir, having passed those backwards. There you go. Rosie, you get the Baileys for oh, being such a wonderful so guest. Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, before we let you go back and enjoy the rest of Easter, uh, please, a huge thank you to someone here at the Duchess and to Avalon who made tonight possible. <laughs> thank you to all of you for coming along. Uh, but, ladies and gentlemen, the final thank you to a phenomenal guest. Well, there you go, Rosie Duffield. You know, whenever people say, oh, where are the talented people in politics? I mean, obviously now there are more talented people on, on the Labour front bench than there perhaps had been uh, pre-2019. Um, but Rosie Duffield is one of those big talents on the back benches um, that whatever she turns her hand to, we didn't even talk about. I mean, I talked about it the last time she was on the show when she did the show over Zoom. Um, about the satirical puppet show. And obviously I wanted to get that in, but in the end, 
as is often the way, uh, you get so immersed in the conversation you're having that rather than cut that short and, and try and quickly go, oh, tell me about the puppet show, uh, you find yourself sometimes out of time. And, and also the, the tone of the interview has gone in a particular way. Um, but what a, a huge talent uh, for the Labour Party. And you know what is so funny? I mean, that's two guests on the trot now. Obviously, um, Jacob Rees-Mogg said that he he tweets about, uh, you know, Easter and Christmas, some religious message that he genuinely believes. But uh, nevertheless, he, he realises that it will cause a fuss on social media. Uh, and perhaps people perhaps don't realise that he's aware of that. Um, and again, this week with Rosie, I mean, I've read those reports about her potentially joining the toys. And like the gullible fool I am always took them at face value, even though I know. I know how the media works and I know how these things work. I think, oh, my God. You know, so there you go. That was uh, that was interesting to get uh, the reality of that situation um, uh, from Rosie herself. Um, but what a fantastic night. Thank you to everyone who came. Uh, and thank you to everyone who's come to see me on tour. Uh, and to those of you that have got tickets for the future dates, I can't wait for them. So you can get tickets to all my shows for the political party and for my stand-up show, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right, uh, at my website, mattford.com. And yes, Saturday the 23rd of April at the Bloomsbury Theatre is my next um, uh, stand-up show in London. And then the political party, the next guest, Andrew Moore on the 2nd of May. Then two weeks later, Lisa Nandy. Two weeks after that, we're streeting. A fortnight after that, Gary Neville. A fortnight after that, David Davis. And two weeks after that, Lindsay Hoyle. I've no idea why I alternated between two weeks and a fortnight there. I just... Um, Got sick of saying two weeks, and then I realised I'd done a few fortnights. Um, there you go. <laughs> Why on earth am I deconstructing how I read out the guest list? It's time for me to go. Thank you so much for downloading this. Please leave a written review, a five-star review, because it helps other people find this podcast. And I'll see you soon. Cheers. ta Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.